Well, this morning we started a little look at that section there in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 7, in which, or verse 17, in which Paul says, I, Paul, with this greeting, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness. And we kind of took that word genuineness and really camped on it for a little while. In every letter of mine, he says, it's the way I write. This issue of the genuineness uh, that, that Paul's speaking of here is incredibly important for us as a local church. I said this morning, it's incredibly important that we understand that the Scriptures are trustworthy, that, that our Bible is a trustworthy Word from God. It's important that we understand the veracity of the Scriptures. We, we come to the Bible tonight, uh, we approach the Bible not as the Word of man, Right? Uh, the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone in the Word of God. And the only thing I'd change about that song is I, I, we don't stand alone. Praise the Lord, I do not have to stand alone in the Word of God. Uh, not only do we have the privilege of standing together, but we stand in the long line of history of faithful men and women who have made the Word of God their, their bread, their life, their health, Right? And so we, we stand on the Word of God. This, this book is the Word of God. We approach this book as the Word of God, not the Word of man. Why? Maybe you, like, you hear us say that, and you, you say that, but you want to know why. Why do we stand on the Word of God? What about all those books that were written around the time of the Bible? We refer to those, you know, you've, you've heard reference to the extra-biblical books. Now, referring, of course, generally, not talking about the books just in general that were written, but those non-canonical books, the books that are not considered as part of the Bible. You've heard of the Gospel of Andrew, the Gospel of Bartholomew, the, the Gospel of Thomas. Maybe you've heard of that more. What about the pseudepigrapha? The pseudepigrapha, what is that? Is that a bunch of fake pigs who wrote? What is pseudepigrapha? That was my joke, I'm sorry. Uh, that's referring to, to texts that are written in the later part of the Old Testament, that, but they're written under a false name. Or, why don't we have the Apocrypha in our, in our Bibles? Essentially 12 books that are, uh, n- that are not included as canonical in our Bibles, but in most of the Roman Catholic, uh, Catholic traditions. Can we be assured that Scripture uh, has been protected by human tampering over the centuries? Uh, our, is what we have here is this, how close is it to the original manuscripts? How close was it to the original uh, uh, writings? How did the Bible come to us in our time? How did the Bible come to us in our language? Is there more to come? Should we expect something more than these 66 books? Should we be on, on the lookout for something more? Who determined? And on what basis? These are questions that perhaps you've had, and maybe for most of you, maybe you've already thought through those things, but for those of you who have not, uh, I'd like to take time tonight to just think about these. And I want to remind you this evening of three great reasons why this book is a divine book. Why this book is supernatural. Why we say this book is 
the Word of God. Why this book is, a, is supernatural. And those three reasons are simply this. The Bible is supernatural, number one, because of its supernatural origination. Its supernatural origin. It's supernatural or it is divine. It is God's book because of its supernatural preservation. Its origination, its preservation, and then it's supernatural in its confirmation. In its confirmation. So we'll just take time to look through those and uh, see, really see how far we get tonight. I, I do have a lot to go over and I want to get it all in in one setting, but I don't want to rush. I, I tend to do that when I know I have a lot. I tend to talk fast. So if I start talking too fast, just raise your hand and uh, you know, act like you're really filled with the Spirit. Start raising your hands or something like that, and I'll just know that that's my signal to, to, to slow down a little bit, okay? So let's talk, first of all, about the Bible as a supernatural book in its origination. You understand, I hope, that the Bible is clear in its self-claims. In fact, it's estimated that over 2,000 times in the Old Testament alone, we find the assertion that God is the author of the Bible. In the New Testament, we find the phrase, the Word of God, some 40 times. The Bible claims to be inerrant. The Bible claims to be infallible. It tells us, the Bible tells us that, that the Bible, is a, the Scriptures are a direct product of God Himself. It is supernatural in its origination. How did the Bible come about? Well, the Bible begins with something we would call the process of revelation. Wherein God reveals truth to man. Consider this, the book of Hebrews Chapter 1, verse 1 begins this way. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Now, that tells us something. It tells us that God revealed His truth, and that God revealed Himself, what we would call, what we say progressively, over time. In other words, he didn't give us all there was to know about himself all at once. God didn't do an information dump and just give us everything there was to know about him all at once. Rather, he gradually revealed himself and revealed his truth to men over time. We call this progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. And there were various ways in which God revealed himself, various ways in which God revealed his truth to men, various ways in which God communicated with them. Of course, generally speaking, we might talk about general revelation. That's what can be known of God just through the plain creation, general revelation. But I think the writer of Hebrews was talking more about the ways that God specifically revealed Himself through His prophets, through His prophets. And how did he do that? In various ways. He did it by dreams. He did it by visions. Sometimes he spoke directly and gave direct information, gave direct instruction as to what they are to write down. You might find it interesting that the very first time we learn of God's Word 
being written down through the direct command uh, of God was given to Moses. In Exodus 17.14, we read this. God said, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. Apparently, God had given instruction to Moses to keep a book and to write certain things down in that book. Now, we know that God personally authored, we just read a little bit or following that, God personally authored two tablets of stone on which he wrote those ten commandments. God told Moses to uh, continue writing all the words that I command you. He told them that in Exodus chapter 34, verse 27. And Moses recorded all of these things. We just read this through the Old Testament. Moses recorded, he wrote down these things in the book of the law. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 26. So we have clear indication that what was happening was that God was giving revelation to Moses, and of course this comes on, this goes on through the Old Testament, and Moses was writing down the words of God. By the time you get to the New Testament, you heard, like we talked about this morning, Paul told the Thessalonians that what they heard and what they received from him was actually the word of God himself. I find it interesting that Peter, when he was writing in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, he said that there are things that men, there are things in Paul's writing that men seek to twist. And then he said this, as they do with all the scriptures. What he's doing there is he's equating what Paul wrote. This is Peter saying this. Peter equated what Paul wrote with the rest of the scriptures. Let me show you something. Look at 1 Timothy for a moment. Chapter 5, verse 18. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. I'll just give you an, an illustration here. Paul's speaking to Timothy, giving instructions to young Timothy, his protege in the faith, as he pastors the church there in Ephesus. And this is a really, really critical verse. He says in verse 18 of chapter 5, For the Scripture says, what does the Scripture say? You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now that's a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 4. But what I want to show you is, not only does he say the Scripture says this in Deuteronomy 25 4, but then he equates something else. And the laborer deserves his wages. You'll never find that in the Old Testament, but you will find it in the book of Luke, chapter 10, verse 7. My point is this, that Paul is comparing and he's saying, what is Scripture? What Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 24 and what Luke wrote in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, he says, is the Scripture. We're talking here about the book being a supernatural book, supernatural in its origination, in terms of God revealing His truth to man. And Jesus, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come on the apostles and that the Holy Spirit would empower them to be His witnesses, to be witnesses for me. 
Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that they would be His eyewitnesses. The Holy Spirit would come on them and that He would empower them to be His eyewitnesses. He told them that the Holy Spirit, how did the Holy Spirit do this? Jesus told them that what would happen is the Holy Spirit would come upon them, John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit would come upon them and bring to mind, He says, everything that I have taught you. Now listen. Their preaching was attended with great power. Their preaching was attended with great power from the Holy Spirit such that people believed in unbelievable numbers. Amazing things happened. This was the spiritual writing of the new covenant onto the hearts of the people who were believing. But more than that, it's more than that. They were eyewitnesses. Jesus says that you would be my eyewitnesses to the word and works of me. You will be eyewitnesses to the word and works of the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what? They were that. And Luke says, and those eyewitnesses, what did they do? Luke chapter 1 verse 2, he says, they delivered them to us. They delivered them to us. Luke 1 2. Jude says that you ought to contend earnestly for the faith that was once what? Once delivered. What's he saying here? What he's saying is, and that's similar to what Paul said to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 11.23 I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. You see what's happening? The Holy Spirit brought to mind, so I'm saying that what what happens here in this divine or supernatural origination of the Word is God revealed His truth to man. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles to supernaturally remind them of the words and works of Jesus Christ. And they did that, not just in the fact on the day of Pentecost that when they preached the Word, many people believed, but more so when they delivered over the teaching, the words and work of Jesus Christ to the people. They were the Holy Spirit-empowered eyewitnesses of the words and work of Jesus Christ. The Bible is supernatural in its origination because it involved the revelation of God to man. But then we go now down to this issue, uh, and that's a great, a great truth, but the apostles knew something. The apostles knew that they would not be around forever. John chapter 21, verse 22, we read this. Jesus said to them, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that the disciples was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say that he was not to die, but if it was my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? In other words, the picture there is the disciples knew, the apostles knew they weren't going to last forever. So here's the question. What was going to happen to their eyewitness testimony? What was going to happen to their eyewitness account? There just happened to be among the apostles a desire among them to write down what they delivered. They just happened to have this desire. You see, what happens is sometimes when we think of the Bible, and we move from revelation to the, the issue of inspiration. All this, again, is under the divine origin of the Bible. is divinely revealed and divinely inspired. 
What we think happens is that since the Scripture comes from God, that men are inactive. That men don't, you know, they somehow come out of their own personality and their own vocabulary and all that. But listen to what Peter says. Peter says, men spoke, men spoke, men spoke as they were as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I like what Sinclair Ferguson said. He said, undoubtedly, the human writers of Scripture were conscious that they were expressing their own thoughts as they wrote. But at the same time, they were under the sovereign direction of the Spirit. This is a a uh, two-dimensional reality, and theologians call this concurrence. Now, what's happening? Peter Back in 2 Peter 1.21, when he says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, is describing the Holy Spirit's ministry of inspiration. It's great that God revealed His truth, but that fact is not enough, for not only must He reveal it, but now He must inspire it. This is the Holy Spirit's ministry of inspiration. That's when I said this morning that what the Scripture says God says, that's what I'm talking about. When the Scripture speaks, God speaks. So Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1 says, you know, I've had this desire to write these things down in order to remind you of these things until I die. We understand that the Holy Spirit actually worked through the desires of men and worked through the words of men and worked through the personalities of men, of those human authors, to bring about the Word of God. That's the ministry of inspiration. God revealed it, divinely revealed truth, divinely revealed Himself, but then assured that they would write down that truth. Luke said, you know, I thought it would be good, he said this in Luke chapter 1, to write an orderly account for you. Why? That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And I'm telling you that what God did is He worked through the the desire of people like Peter and Luke and other men so that they would write down what they knew so that we could be sure that what we have is actually the revelation of God. Paul said, all Scripture is breathed out by God. That's like saying, all Scripture is a result of God's exhaling. God just breathing it out. That's why we we say that the Scripture, the Word of God, was protected from human error because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. John MacArthur said this, A section in Zechariah 7.12 describes it most clearly. And he says this, The law and the words which the Lord of hosts has sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. That's the ministry of inspiration. The Bible is supernatural in its origins because it begins with God's revelation and extends over into the Holy Spirit's ministry of inspiration such that what is written is actually assured to be the revelation of God. We know a little bit about the divine origination of the Bible. But what about, secondly, the supernatural or the divine preservation? Let me ask it this way. How do we know that we have what God gave to the prophets in the Old Testament and that God gave to the apostles in the New Testament? How do we know that what we have here today 
is what God gave to the prophets in the old and what God gave to the apostles in the new. We know that the Word of God has been the singular object of the devil's attack from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3. We know that the Bible, that, that, that the devil is a master at distorting the Word of God. We know that throughout history, all kinds of attempts have been made over and over again to destroy the Word of God and take it out of existence. I mean, in 175 B.C., the king of Syria ordered the Jews to destroy their, their, the copies of their scriptures, their scriptures. It was a man, Judas Maccabeus, who decided that he would not obey that, and he, he uh, saved those books, and then he led a subsequent revolt that ultimately led to the independence of the Jews, a, a celebration that is today called the celebration of Hanukkah. How do we know that what we have today is actually what was revealed and written down by the prophets and the apostles? We're going to talk about the, the issue of preservation. The Bible is a supernatural book because of its preservation. Listen to what the Bible says. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Or my favorite verse, Psalm 119, 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. The reason that, that it's preserved on earth is because it is firmly fixed in the heavens. How did God preserve His Word? Let me just take you a little bit through history of the Old Testament and history of the New Testament to explain to you how God supernaturally preserved His Word. When it comes to the Old Testament, the story is pretty unique. In Deuteronomy 17, before there were actually kings in Israel... God said this to Moses. He said, yeah, now you're going to come to a point where you're going to ask for kings. You don't have them yet, but there's going to come a point when you ask for kings. And then in Deuteronomy 17, 18, he said this. And when he, your king, sits on the throne. Now listen to this. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him and he shall read it in all of the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them so that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. So what that means is one of two things. Either the king, who didn't exist at this point yet, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, when Moses is telling Israel like this, Israel this, it either means that the king was supposed to have an approved copy of the book of the law that was made by Moses, or probably better, that the king himself was to be a faithful scribe and make his own copy of the book of the law. We're talking about how, how did God preserve these writings. In the Old Testament, we see kings in charge of writing down, keeping being faithful scribes. During the Old Testament period, the tabernacle was first the tabernacle, then it was the temple that became the central location for stirring, storing up and preserving these writings. Remember what happened under the revival of King Josiah in 2 Kings chapter 22. And then there were other kings like Hezekiah. And there were faithful prophets, schools of the prophets, 
who played important roles in preserving and transmitting God's Word is recorded in these writings. Later in the Old Testament, we learn that there were indeed quite a prevalence of these writings, especially as recorded by the prophets. For instance, Jeremiah, remember this, Jeremiah 29, he wrote a letter to the Babylonian exiles, but then he dictated those prophecies again to his scribe after the first copy was, born, was burned. Then we learn that Daniel, who was in exile, actually had a copy of Jeremiah's prophecy while he was in exile. Daniel chapter 9, verse 2. The prophet Ezekiel was ordered to eat the great scroll. Ezekiel 3, 1 through 3. And just after the exile, Zechariah saw a flying scroll. There were texts, there were scrolls, there were scribes, part of the religious world and part of the religious imagery. But most interesting to me is how, is, is how at the end of the Old Testament period, as we come to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we find one of the most important notes. Ezra, who had been in exile, was a faithful scribe, and the Bible says that he was preparing himself. He was studying the law of the Lord. He was expounding the law that Moses had written. He was preparing himself while he was in exile to carefully understand the law, such that when he came back to Israel in Nehemiah chapter 8, the people were ready, and they said, bring the book, and Ezra brought forth the book, Nehemiah chapter 8, and it details for us how God's people, once again, back in God's land, gathered themselves around the written word. Amazing. By the time that, of Jesus, we find that the accepted, that the, uh, the accepted Old Testament was intact. You've heard, of course, of the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Ninth, discovered in 1947, which contained Hebrew copies of the Old Testament books from the time period just before Christ, confirming that we have the same Old Testament as was in Jesus' day. How did God preserve His Word? We see it in the Old Testament history, how His Word just shows up everywhere. Everybody's got a copy of it. Everybody knows what it says. When it comes to the New Testament, I think the story is even perhaps grander. Do you know that we have over 5,000, I think it's like around 5,700 existing Greek New Testament manuscripts? Later manuscripts that were not in Greek pushed that number up. I'm talking about Latin and things like that. Pushed that number up to close to 25,000. What if all of them were just suddenly destroyed? Well, then you also need to consider the written work or the written testimony of the early church fathers. They wrote books. They wrote letters. They wrote articles. And from those books and from those letters, we find nearly 40,000 quotations from the New Testament. So much so that it is, uh, it is estimated that if every Greek manuscript were lost, we would be able to reconstruct the New Testament minus about 11 verses. God has preserved His Word. It is supernaturally originated through revelation and inspiration. It is supernaturally preserved. Now we understand that we don't have all of the original writings. Those original writings 
you do any study on that, will be called autographs. But we have thousands, thousands, as I mentioned, manuscripts, copies of the original. God supernaturally preserved His Word through what we'll call transmission. Transmission. Now, of all of those manuscripts that we have, of course there are differences between those manuscripts, but those differences are extremely small, extremely insignificant, including minor spelling variations, sometimes a difference in word order, and in a few texts there are texts, parts of texts that are actually disputed. But the science of textual criticism has been able to compare all of those thousands of texts and determined that more than 99% of the original writings have been reclaimed. Listen to one man. He said, through the centuries, tens of thousands of copies and thousands of translations have been made, which is called transmission, which did introduce some error. Because there is an abundance of existing ancient Old Testament and New Testament manuscripts, however, the exacting science of textual criticism has been able to reclaim the content of the original writings revelation and inspiration, to the extreme degree of 99.9%, with the remaining 100 of 1% having no effect on content. That's preservation. How did God preserve His work? Through transmission, and then through a process we call canonization. You heard of the word canon before. Now, I'm not talking about something that used a weapon that they used in the Civil War. I'm talking about canon used to refer just generally and basically to a list of books. The canon is a list of books whose content was viewed as being written under divine inspiration. The canon is a list of books whose content was viewed as being written under divine inspiration. Canonization. When it comes to the issue of canonization, in other words, what books were accepted as being divinely written or written under divine inspiration? I want you to understand something. I think sometimes in Christianity, we have this view that there were a couple of people who sat down in a circle or in a room somewhere and determined which books we would have in the Bible. They determined which 66 books we would, we would have. Somehow, you know, people sat around and maybe they... They all put their heads down and they said, okay, book of, you know, Romans. And whoever thought Romans should be, they put their hand up and, you know, that's exactly not what happened. In fact, the Old Testament was largely attested and recognized by the Jews a long time before Jesus Christ. The Old Testament used by Christ, in fact, does not include the Apocrypha that was only added by the Roman Catholic Church later in order to approve or to give a basis for false doctrine. The New Testament, however, took time. The New Testament took time. Over time, these books were collected. Because you, got, you, know, you don't have uh, copy machines that are going on. you got people copying down things, writing things down over time. In other words, those books became actually became part of the canon at the moment they were written they actually became part of the they actually became part of the canon the moment they were written but they were gradually recognized by the church over time various councils wouldn't they didn't vote on these things they just recognized 
Laodicea in 363, Hippo in 393, Carthage in 397, all affirm the 27 books of the New Testament based on three things. Apostolic origin, orthodox doctrine, and broad-based acceptance among all the churches. Those are the three things that basically had to be in order for a text to be recognized as divinely inspired. Apostolic origin, orthodox doctrine, and broad-based acceptance. And a long time before those councils met, these books had been widely accepted, recognized for their orthodox doctrine, and understood to be apostolic in origin. And it was over time that the church would meet and demonstrate their acceptance, demonstrate their affirmation of these books as divinely originating. So how did God preserve? He preserved through transmission, through canonization, and through what we might call completion. You ask the question, is there more to come? Should we expect more inspired Scripture? I want to address that in three ways. First, it would be impossible for there to be any books added to the canon of Scripture. Why? There are no prophets or apostles today. It's just they don't exist. Well, then somebody says, but what about if we find a book? You know, hey, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. What if we find a book that was written by Paul? Are we going to accept this as new revelation? Are we going to accept this as part of the canon. Well, what we're essentially saying is that for 1,900 years, 2,000 years, there's been nothing added, and then all of a sudden, there's a new one which cannot be attested throughout church history, and I believe that any thoughtful Christian would be unlikely to accept that as being inspired of God. But third, I want to remind you of the warnings of Scripture. I want to remind you of the warnings of Scripture. Deuteronomy 4.2 You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6 Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. Revelation 22:18 I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of the prophecy of this book if anyone adds to them God will add to him the plagues described in this book and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book God has preserved his word through transmission through canonization and through completion, such that we don't have to wonder, is there more to come? We have everything that God has intended for us to have. We have His testimony, divine revelation, divine inspiration, brought down to us, transmitted to us through the writings of the apostles, through all of these copies, thousands and thousands and thousands 
of copies uh, attending to and affirming both the Old Testament and New Script and, and New Testament, and then we can say that what we have is complete. The Bible is a supernatural book, supernatural in its origination, supernatural in its preservation, <clears throat> but supernatural in its confirmation. We would expect any book that we're talking about to bear, we could say, to bear divine birthmarks, to show the marks of divinity, to show the, su the supernatural marks, the con confirming supernatural marks that this is in fact written by, brought to us by God. And in another place, at another time, I've given you some of these marks, but I just want to share some of them with you tonight. I want you to think of the, the unity of this book. The Bible is not one book, you understand, but it is a collection of 66 different books written by 40 different authors from three different continents in three different languages over a period of 1,600 years. And oh, by the way, there were 400 years of silence between the ending of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. The human authors came from different backgrounds. Some were shepherds and some were kings. Some were lawyers and some were doctors. Some were farmers and some were priests. Some were soldiers and some were carpenters. Some were tent makers and some were fishermen. Some were tax collectors, prophets, cupbearers, and scribes. And yet, in the midst of all of this diversity, there is one consistent message throughout the Bible. That is a divine birthmark. The unity of Scripture. Not only the unity, but how about the indestructibility of Scripture? I've told you before, no other book has been the subject of so much scrutiny and so much persecution so much mocking and so much scorn, so much fierce opposition, but the Bible. I want you to think back to the year 303 A.D. Now, I know you weren't there, at least I don't think you were, but the Roman emperor was Diocletian. He was filled with glee when he concluded that he had fully and finally destroyed every Bible following years of ruthless persecution and slaughter of Christians. In fact, he even erected a column of victory over the ashes of a burned Bible. And on that column there was a plaque and it said extinct the name scripture or the, the, the name Christian. But 20 years later, a new emperor came on the scene. His name was Constantine. And he sought out copies of the scripture and even offered a reward just to find one copy. In less than a day, he was presented with 50 copies of the scripture. The emperor's bodies laying in ruins. His soul is in eternal torment. But the word of the Lord endures forever. That's a divine birthmark. Indestructibility. Not only that, but how about the historical accuracy of the scriptures? The science of archaeology has and continues to testify to the historical accuracy of the scriptures. And I don't have time to talk to you about those, but let me just pick out two of them. I think about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. William Albright found in the southeast corner of the Dead Sea a large amount of relics dating from somewhere around 2500 to 2000 B.C. And that, that uh, uh, indicated that there was a large population of people that all of a sudden went extinct around the year 2000 B.C. He concluded that it must have been some kind of explosion that happened. 
I think it's interesting that the archaeologist Garstang found evidence of the fall of Jericho. It was destroyed, he assumed, somewhere around 1400 B.C. But what was so astounding to him was that usually when those cities were destroyed, it was because the the walls had shown that they were pushed in. But something was amazing about Jericho. You see, it was built up on a city, and the walls, or the, the city was built up on a hill, and the walls had not fallen in as if they'd been pushed in, but they actually fell down, out, down the hill, giving testimony to exactly what God testified in the book of Joshua. The, the, the Bible is historically accurate. These are things we would expect to be divine birthmarks. Not only historical accuracy, but scientific accuracy. I mean, Again, I don't want to go on over this over and over again, but you know that the prevailing view before 1492 was that the earth was flat. But if they, you know, Columbus could have saved himself a whole lot of struggle if he would have just read Isaiah 40:22, which says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. I think what's interesting to me, and I'll just throw this out there as far as scientific accuracy. In Genesis 17, God gives the law of circumcision. And that law of circumcision says that the the male child is to be circumcised not on the seventh day, not on the ninth day, but on the eighth day. Interestingly enough, data from the science of pediatrics has found out that there is more vitamin K, there's more prothrombin in in a young boy blood on the eighth day after birth than at any other time in his life. And what is that uh, in charge of? That's in charge of blood clotting. The Bible is scientifically accurate. That's a divine birthmark. How about its prophetic accuracy? Consider the book of Daniel, which, by the way, is singularly derided by liberals today, as, as not a book of prophecy, but a book of history, because they say no one could write prophecy as detailed and as accurate as Daniel had. He must be writing history. Yet you look at the book of Daniel, and you see all of these predictions of the four successive world powers coming to be, and certainly one right after another, right after another, right after another, took place just like God, just like God said through the prophet Daniel. Consider the prophecies concerning the life of Christ. Just understand the Bible is prophetically accurate. Consider how honest the Scriptures are. Someone once said this, the Bible is not a book that man could write if he would or would write if he could. (laughs) The Bible is not a book that a man could write if he would or would write if he could. What does that mean? The point is that no man would record the colossal sins and the shortcomings and the failures and the faults that we read about in the Bible. If if the Bible were written by men merely, would we read of Noah's drunkenness and Moses' fear and act of murder, David's adultery and cover up, Elijah's fleeing from Jezebel, Peter's outspokenness? The Bible is amazingly honest. And this is a birthmark, a divine birthmark. But I think over everything, uh, what I would present to you as the divinest of the birthmarks, the divinest uh, confirmation of the, the supernatural fact of the Bible, that the Bible is supernatural, is this story. 
was a socialist who's trying to stir up support of his human, for his uh, human form of government. He was in New York City, and he loudly proclaimed on the street corner, he saw a homeless man in torn and ragged clothing. And he stood up and got the attention of all the passersby, and he said this, socialism will put a new suit on that man right there. A Christian heard that statement, and he replied quickly, the Bible will put a new man in that old suit of clothes right there. You see, the, the socialist said, you, you really believe the details of the Bible? Even that Jesus turned the water into wine? Oh yes, he said. But there's a greater miracle than that. He said, you see, for four, four years, I was staggering around as a hopeless drunk. I spent everything I had to possess that poison my wife and children often went hungry while I was drinking it up. But then one day, God's Word gripped my soul, and I'm here to tell you that Jesus did an even greater miracle, for He turned wine into milk for my children. That's the work of my Jesus. And that's the real evidence that the, the Bible is a divine book, isn't it? You can't separate the Word from the person, and that's what makes Christianity different. It's different because it's true. You can rest assured, and this, this is just a brief overview, you can rest assured that this Bible you hold in your hands is a supernatural book. Supernatural in its origination, coming from God's revelation and and then inspired as man wrote it down, and then preserved as transmitted through thousands and thousands of existing manuscripts, existing copies today, canonized, completed, finalized. You can be sure this Bible is a supernatural book because of the divine supernatural confirmation that is viewed on its pages. All of these divine birthmarks, and I could have given you four or five more, showing you, confirming once again that this book is God's book. Listen, the Bible claims ultimate spiritual authority and doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness because it represents the inspired word of Almighty God. One man said, Scripture asserts its spiritual sufficiency so much that it claims exclusivity for its teaching. God's word declares that it is inerrant and that it is infallible. It is true and therefore trustworthy. And all these qualities are dependent on the fact that the Scriptures are God-given, which guarantees at the source and at its original writing, in Scripture the person of God and the Word of God are everywhere interrelated, so much so that whatever is true about the character of God is true about the nature of God's Word. God is true, impeccable, and reliable. Therefore, so is God's Word. When the Scriptures speak, God speaks. Someone said, if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible. If you want to hear Him speak audibly, read it out loud. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this testimony of Your Word. And I pray that You will write Your eternal truth on our hearts that we may forever live for You. I pray that you'll help us when satanic attack comes in our hearts and minds. Distortion and doubt 
regarding the Word of God. I pray, O Lord, that You would strengthen us and that You would continually remind us of these truths and that You'll help us to to see our responsibility in stirring one another up to love and good works. That You will use our little church here, God, to, to help us to be strong and faithful, trusting in Your Word not turning from the right or to the right or to the left, not turning away from it, O oh God, but turning to it and trusting every word you say so that we might be faithful to you, that we might be holy men and women of God in the midst of our sin, in the midst of temptation, O oh God, that you would grant us a way of escape, that we would live for you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself. Thank you for giving divine inspiration thank you for writing it down in a book verifiable truth that we can measure we can memorize we can meditate on all the days of our life we thank you and give you praise and together all god's people said amen